Uh, we're in Job 22, Job chapter 22. And we've been so far able to knock out a chapter every Wednesday, so uh, that's was something that I set a pretty strong goal because I didn't want to uh, still be in Job at the turn of the next century, you know. So uh, it can it can really take you that long, but we're we're beginning the third round of debates i guess you could say of job and his three friends this is going to be the final speech of Elf, uh, eliphaz and his speech is again as we've been talking about they've been getting a little bit harsher every time they're getting meaner and meaner and meaner uh, as they're going along now eliphaz in this chapter uh, without hesitation accuses job of great sin insisting that he repent uh, before this they've been a lot of innuendo and uh, talking about uh, this is what happens to wicked men's children and then proceed to say what happened to Job's children. They're trying to do a lot of innuendo, but he just, uh, the mask kind of comes off here. The gloves come off on this one. Uh, it's interesting because last week we talked about Job 21 where Job was uh, trying to combat this if you're, if bad things befall you, it's because you're wicked. Well, then in chapter 21, Job says, no, no. The, the wicked enjoy good things all the time. Sometimes wicked live a long life and and uh, they they enjoy riches and they enjoy all these things. And we know that's a fact. And when you look around, uh, who has the money of this world? It's not the righteous people. It's mostly wicked people have the money and the and the fame and 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 all that uh, esteem and that thing. So uh, this is that that Job came back with that. Well, they totally ignored this, and he's just moving on with their initial impression. So let's read some verses here as we will. Uh, again, I'm going to read probably six verses to start with, and then we'll just pick them up as we go. Then in life as the Temanite said, answered and said, Can a man be profitable unto God, as he that is wise may be profitable unto himself? Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that thou art righteous, or is it gain to him that thou may makest thy ways perfect? Again, these are rhetorical questions. Didn't want an answer. Will he reprove thee for fear of thee? Will he enter with thee into judgment? Is not thy wickedness great? There it is. Now, this isn't talking about wicked people in the abstract. He's just flat out coming. It's you, Job. Is not thy wickedness great? And thine iniquities infinite? For thou hast taken a pledge from thy brother for naught and stripped the naked of their clothing. Uh, Father, we pray you'd help us as we look at this chapter. I know we probably won't be able to get through the whole thing, but uh, hit, hit some things that will be a help to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so he starts immediately out with accusations. Now, we know that they've been using this, uh, the whole premise of all of their speeches has been that bad things happened, therefore you must be wicked. Uh, Job, as I've mentioned, tries to combat that a little bit with saying, you know, the, the rain does fall on the righteous and the unjust, uh, the, both, you know, the good and bad happens to good and bad people, uh, but they aren't wanting to accept that. Uh, then remember, again, uh, it bears reminding that they're here to comfort him. At no point do they actually accomplish that or seem to even attempt to do that, except for the seven days when they didn't talk. But uh, as soon as they started talking, there hasn't been any comfort coming. Uh, that's why Job has told them several times, ye are miserable comforters. Now, Eliphaz here is convinced that Job is a great sinner, and so he even cites some sins that he believes Job's committed, which, again, is interesting because he offers no proof. He has no witnesses. He just uh, names some things, I guess, out of the blue. 
uh, again, we get the feeling, and I, I'm going to point this out a little later, that uh, we have said all throughout that all three friends, it seems like they're taking some delight in punching Job while he's down. Uh, I think that they have had some jealousy about Job in the past because it did say in the beginning that Job was the greatest, which means he was greater than any of those were. And now, uh, isn't it our human nature to see those above us want to be knocked down a peg once in a while? Uh, it seems like they have that kind of joy and jealousy about him. Now that troubles have come to Job, they seem glad that they can accuse him uh, and make him out to be worse than they are. This is really what some people are after, unfortunately. They don't need to bury you. They just want to knock you down lower than they are. And they'll use accusation. They'll use false accusation to accomplish that. It is in our human nature to want to reduce others so that we can enhance ourselves. That is not biblical. That is not a Christian attitude, although many Christians have that attitude. Uh, the Bible tells us in Philippians 2, 3, the exact opposite. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than ourselves. Now, imagine a, a church, if the whole church would esteem everyone else better than themselves. We'd have a mighty nice community. Imagine if everybody in your family uh, esteemed other better than themselves. Uh, that would be a very pleasant living experience. But this is not what they were doing here. Eliphaz's accusations against Job. First, he starts with the ignorance of God. It's interesting. There's no thought that he might be ignorant about any of this. Just accuses Job of it. Look at verse 2. Can a man be profitable unto God? This is the ignorance of God's prophet. As he is that is wise may be profitable unto himself. So uh, the implied answer is no, because this is a rhetorical question. Uh, the statement is correct, but the application is wrong. It is true that God does not need man. Uh, the, it is also true that man desperately needs God. In our seven laws of spiritual growth we went through on Wednesday night, we had a whole law on that. God does not need us, but we most desperately need him. Our wisdom may profit ourselves. Uh, it does not profit God. Now, Eliphaz thinks that Job believes that God does not punish the wicked because they are of profit to God. This is kind of the innuendo he's giving here. And Job did not say that at all. He's not saying that the wicked are profiting God. He just simply pointed out the fact in chapter 21, sometimes the wicked have stuff. Sometimes they don't suffer. Sometimes they even mention they die easy deaths. They live a long life and they have all these things. Of course, we understand, like the psalmist says, that we, we know their end is not good. After they die is not good. But sometimes they... Uh, they they do live very successful lives on earth. But Ole Lifas isn't listening. Uh, that's a shock. They haven't listened the whole book yet, so that's not a surprise. He simply wrongly assumes that Job is applying that God needs man. Uh, it's true that sometimes men think they are so important that they're indispensable to God. I've known preachers that think this, honestly. Uh, preachers of ministries and and preachers that have fallen and uh, into sin, and they have that attitude that they're so big, so important, that nothing can take them down. Uh, this is never, ever the case. Was Moses so important that God could not lead Israel without him? Well, no, because we know that God had a Joshua ready to take over. Again, God does not need us. We definitely need him. Not only the ignorance of God's prophet, the ignorance of God's pleasure. Look at verse 3. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that thou art righteous? 
or is it a gain to, or is it gain to him that thou makest thy ways perfect? Eliphas again in the rhetorical question implies a negative answer. But let me ask you this question. Does it pleasure the Almighty if you're righteous? Let me read you this verse in Psalm 147, verse 11. The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him, uh, those that hope in his mercy. Psalm 149, 4. For the Lord taketh pleasure in his people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. Does the Lord take pleasure in the righteous? I believe he absolutely does. He takes pleasure in us doing right. So Eliphas is wrong there. I, I, I do believe that God takes pleasure in the righteousness of people. And then the ignorance of God's punishment. Look at verse 4. Will he reprove thee for fear of thee? Will he enter with thee into judgment? This is a put-down of what Job earlier said when he asks that he wants his case heard before God. Eliphaz is telling Job here, God doesn't fear you. He's not about to go to court with you. In other words, going to court as, a, uh, as an advocate for him and uh, is not going to justify Job or justify himself to Job as to why he's afflicted. Uh, Job cannot go to court and file charges against God and expect God to come to court and give an account. All right, We understand this is true in its essence, but again, the accusation implies that Job thinks he's so arrogant that God does fear him enough to show up. With Job, it was more of a plea. It was more of a uh, begging that God would, and there's just a lot of contempt in this statement by Eliphaz. Now he becomes even more vicious and accusatory in verse 5. He has no evidence, no proof for his claims. But can I remind you that men like him do not ever need proof to level accusations. Accusations can come without any proof at all, and uh, many people feel free to level them. Look at the extremeness of the injustices here. Is not thy wickedness great and thy iniquities infinite? He's finally these come out and plainly said what they've been implying for 21 chapters, that Job's wicked. Now he just comes right out and says it. You are a great sinner. The greatness of your troubles tell me, Job, that you are a great sinner. They, of course, were very wrong. Do you remember what provoked Job's troubles? His righteousness provoked his troubles, not his sin. Uh, it was, have, have thou considered my servant Job? And then the uh, examples here. He gives four examples of Job's wickedness. Again, has no proof about this at all. Uh, by making these accusations, he does not vilify Job really as much as he vilifies himself. Uh, first look at the meanness to the borrower, borrower verse 6. For thou hast taken a pledge from thy brother for naught and stripped the naked of their clothing. Here, Eliphaz is speaking to Job about Job's behavior when lending money. He accuses him of two evils. Uh, first of all, requiring a pledge. Thou hast taken a pledge from thy brother for naught. There's no need for collateral, yet you've demanded it. He's accusing Job here. Uh, the, you know, look, I don't know, did they know each other well enough to where Eliphaz knew of Job's prior business dealings? I don't know, but we're certainly not showing any proof of these claims. Then Job is accused of retaining the pledge, stripped the naked of their clothing under Mosaic law, according to Exodus 22, 26, and 27. They are, uh, when, when you're, you pledge a garment for a loan, it was to be returned at night so that the borrower would not be uncovered at night. Now, Eliphaz is, is uh, accusing Job here of being cruel to the point of not giving the garment back at night. The only problem is he's accusing from imagination, not facts. 
But facts are not important here. Facts are never important when it comes to accusatory behavior. Uh, people do this. It's striking to me the difference between the honest search for truth in a conflict or misunderstanding and how quickly a conflict or misunderstanding can be worked out if there's an honest search for truth and then the desire to impugn or destroy whatever means necessary, which I believe is what's happening here. I have, I'm sure uh, Pastor Ford can say the same in, in his church. There's disagreements that I have had with probably every man in here at some point or another about something. Uh, uh, Pastor Forsberg and I will disagree about stuff at certain times, and uh, yet we can still get along. We still love the Lord together. We can still serve together. Um, we've, we, we work these things out and we move forward because when you take two spirit-led men or two sincere Christians and they work to find a quick resolution to any problems they might have, and that's, that's always the goal. But if one or more is led by the flesh, then you'll have problems. And uh, there have been things like misunderstood motives, misheard intentions, and then flat-out disagreements about things. Uh, and that does not hinder a relationship of two spirit-led Christians. It really doesn't. I mean, you can get over those things and move forward. Whereas if you're dealing with somebody like this who is just leveling out accusations... Uh, like cannonballs, and he has nothing to back them up. He's just throwing out accusations to see what will stick, basically. Uh, when you simply have a person who wants to hurt another brother or sister in Christ, facts do not matter. So they resort to innuendo and charges. It is not about the truth behind the charges. It's how much damage can be done with those charges. The goal is destruction, not restitution. And uh, it, by, by the way, we saw this, I believe, attempted with these whole Russian hit job on Donald Trump with the last presidency. Uh, it's now being proven that there was no truth behind it. In fact, it was all manufactured, but it didn't matter what the truth was because facts aren't the issue. Damage is the issue. And God help us if we as Christians ever resort to this. We don't want to uh, be guilty of that at all. Then there's miserliness. Verse 7. Thou hast not given water to the weary to drink. Thou hast withholding bread from the hungry. The accusation would be pretty terrible if it's true, but we have no evidence that this is true. It was made up. The accusation's false. Uh, again, again, it doesn't bother Eliphaz because truth isn't the goal. A accusatory, critical people are not looking for facts. They're looking for damage, and this is what he's doing here. Verse number 8, as for the mighty men, he had the earth and the honorable men dwelt in it. This, uh, he's accusing Job here of practicing Really, the philosophy of might makes right. The powerful man, the mighty, owns the earth, and the ones that favor the honorable men live in it. A lot of people believe this. Uh, might makes right. They conquer nations, possess riches, dole it out to their favorites and their minions, And uh, but this wasn't Job's case. We have no evidence of this at all. And then the mistreatment of the unfortunate. Verse 9. Thou hast sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless have been broken. These accusations are false. Job addresses them in chapter 29, verse 13, when he says, I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. Do you think the widow's heart sang for joy when he sent the widows away empty? No. He's, uh, he's addressing that and making that accusation uh, to no effect. Then look at verse 10 and 11. Therefore snares are round about thee, and sudden fear troubleth thee, or darkness, 
that thou canst not see and the abundance of water cover thee. He's using again the abundance of Job's troubles to accuse him of being a sinner. There is no room in his thinking for righteous suffering. Many of the afflictions of the righteous. There's no, there's no room in his thought for that at all. Only sinners suffer is his idea. And so Job must be a great sinner because he's going through great suffering. He mentions now four aspects of how the pain of Job uh, accuses Job. Can you imagine, by the way, if we took this tact, the people that are suffering, imagine coming to visit somebody in the hospital who just found out they have cancer. What wickedness did you do to bring this on yourself? You know, can you imagine if we brought this type of comforting to people? What a sad thing this is. Look at the destruction in the inflictions. Uh, verse 10. Therefore, snares around the key word being therefore, this has come on you because of your wickedness. That's a reason the calamities and destruction came. And then the dread, uh, sudden fear, trouble theme, verse 10. Now, if you remember chapter 3, verse 25, chapter 7, verse 14, chapter 13, verse 21, Job talked about the fear that was on him. And so what does Eliphaz do? Instead of comforting him, he throws it back in his face and uses it against him. And then he talks about darkness, verse 11, or darkness that thou canst not see. In chapter 19, verse 8, Job had said that he was... Uh, plagued with darkness he complained that god has set darkness in my paths but the darkness he was talking about there was the darkness of not understanding i don't understand why this is happening to me and of course eliphaz switches that around to the darkness of judgment uh, great friends these guys just great friends uh, are just constantly trying to kick him when he's down i mentioned this uh last week maybe the week before my whole life I've heard about Job, the patience of Job. The New Testament talks about the patience of Job and how Job was the most patient man. And I've always looked at it as Job was faithful through all his suffering. I'm changing my mind as I'm studying the book of Job. I think his patience came from these rotten friends that showed up. That's where he had to have patience. I mean, the suffering, which is worse, the suffering or being kicked repeatedly by your so-called friends. He certainly was patient with them. Then the deluge here, an abundance of waters cover thee, verse 11. The comparison here is severe trouble to an overwhelming flood. This is common in Scripture, uses this uh, language a lot. Verses 12 to 14, let's keep going here. Is not God in the height of heaven? And behold, the height of the stars, how high they are. And thou sayest, how doth God know? Can he judge through the dark cloud? Thick clouds are a covering to him that he seeth not. Uh, Eliphaz is accusing Job here of insulting God and disrespecting him. Job's word, again, may we be reminded, Job's words about God, although sometimes on the verge of disrespect, came from his pain, not his conviction. In fact, his conviction would speak through in the midst of his pain many times. Uh, but in our pain, we will question things sometimes and uh, I'm not saying that when he questioned God that he was right but but we can at least understand it it's good for us to remember that when we speak from frustration or pain or suffering we're still speaking and people still hear that's why I always say the best your best sermon is you in the valley uh, because 
We ought to watch our tongues when we're in trouble, amen? Because uh, sometimes that's when we say things and do things that are uh, can get us in trouble. Job's sermon was while he was in the valley. And uh, he had some severe things that he said that questioned God. I think that instead of jumping on it and beating him over the head with it, more godly friends might have helped him to uh, come to terms with some of those things and encouraged him with the word of God rather than to try to claim spiritual uh, superiority over him, which is what these three knuckleheads kept doing. All right, the involvement with evil we get to next. He suggests here that Job is involved with evil people and evil philosophies. Almost like he thinks Job is identifying with the prosperous uh, prosperity of the wicked that he was talking about in the previous chapter. Remember what Job said in chapter 21, verse 16, the counsel of the wicked is far from me. Eliphaz did not need facts to make his accusation because a wicked heart is all that's necessary for that and a and, uh, critical spirit. Look at verse 15. Where are we at here? Verse 15. Hast thou marked the old way which wicked men have trodden? Uh, the word marked means to watch, to observe. Uh, I, I think the implication here is that he's observing the way of the wicked in order to join in because maybe he can prosper like he says they did in the chapter before. Uh, basically saying, so you're saying they're so prosperous, obviously you want in on some of that. That's not, again, what Job was saying at all. He was trying to combat the theory or the premise that they were coming from that because you're wicked, you're suffering, and because you're suffering, you're wicked. Not all the wicked people in the world suffer. And uh, they just didn't hear it. Critical hearts rarely listen to anything that's being said. They're too busy talking. They're too busy leveling it out to listen. Uh, and we're out of time. But which were cut down. There's words out of time. Verse 16. Whose foundation was overflowing to flood. He insists that the wicked will always be cut down early. They will not always be cut down early. All right. Uh, we see that today in our society today. George Soros wasn't cut down early, was he? <laughs> anyway, that's all we'll say about that. But. He mentions the great flood as an example that punishment does come on the wicked, and it does sometimes, but not always. Uh, by the way, we, we know it always will in eternity, but it doesn't always happen as soon as we might think it should. Verse 17, we're sudden to God depart from us. What can the Almighty do for them? Basically, he's uh, using Job's last speech verse, uh, that, that, with some changes here. And, uh, and then he does, he does speak, admit here in verses, let's look at verse 17, uh, verse 18 actually. He does admit that they do see some prosperity, yet he filled their houses with good things, but the counsel of the wicked is far from me. The righteous see it and are glad. The innocent laugh them to scorn. Um, do the righteous, are the righteous glad at the punishment of the wicked? Um are we, I, I want to read this verse to you if I can find it here. Proverbs 29.2. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. When the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. So there certainly is a certain amount of joy when the righteous are in charge and, and uh, the people are, are in authority. And uh, when the wicked are in authority, uh, there has to be a certain amount of rejoicing when they're defeated. Amen. I mean, look at when the wall came down. Uh, in Germany and, and those type of things. We see much rejoicing when wicked rule goes away. So people naturally rejoice when the righteous are in charge. But I think there's a little bit of a life as giving himself away here 
because the inference is that people are rejoicing at the destruction of Job because, according to him, Job abused all these people. The problem with this premise is Job had not done evil to other people. This is made up assumptions. But who was really rejoicing in Job's destruction, may I ask? It seems to me he had three friends that have spent the whole book so far rejoicing over Job's destruction. And what a sad thing that is. Uh, they had lived in the shadow of Job, and now they thought that uh, they had taken a superior status over him. And uh, the book, uh, the, the chapter concludes here that with the advice that he needs to, because he's such a great sinner, he needs to reconcile with God. Verse 21, acquaint now thyself with him and be at peace. Uh, be useful. Do something profitable, he's saying. Uh, be at peace is the desired goal. Uh, receive the word, verse 22. Uh, there, return to God, verse 22. Return to the Almighty. Renounce your wickedness. Renounce your iniquity, verse 23. Put away iniquity from thy tabernacles, thy dwelling. Um, this is, uh, he, he finishes with the consequences for Job. If he repents and comes back to God, good things will happen. Talks about the blessings of prosperity, verses 23 through 25. The blessing of protection, verse 25. The blessing of piety, verse 26 and 27. The blessing of power, verse 28. And then the blessing of philanthropy in verse 29 through 30. And uh, all these things will happen if you just get your heart right with God. What a callous, what a proud what a um, condescending type of comfort this is as they're trying to deal with Job. And uh, one thing that this has helped me in my, just the way I want to minister to people is to never be that type of counselor. There is a time to pontificate and there is a time to comfort. And when a guy is scraping himself, sitting in ashes, scraping his body and has lost his whole family, and uh, lost his will. It's not a time to beat him over the head with facts. All right? It's a time to put his arm, your arm around him and love on him a little bit. you know. And they did none of that. So uh, let's take a lesson from him. All right? That's great. Thank you, Father, for loving us.